Again, I, as we turn to the Word of God, Jamie and Jim, you were a little late for church this morning, but I fully understand why. <laughs> Thank you again so much for your kindness. God, we just love you kids so much. I'll tell you what, I just, I don't know what to tell you. That's that kind of, uh, I don't think there was anybody there that was a visitor last night that wasn't touched by your hospitality. I mean that. I watched them say goodbye to you, and I want to know what they said to me. And I just don't think there was any of your family that just wasn't overwhelmed by the fact that somebody would, I mean, my wife got in a car, you know, we're right home, and I said, wow. I said, what a great couple. And she said, man, she said, what, what graciousness to open up. Who in the world would open up their home to 80 people and say, come on in, go wherever you want, do whatever you want, man. So uh, my wife and I have booked to stay there next week. <laughs> Love you, kids. Love you to death. My goodness, that was so, so nice. Well, if you have your Bibles this morning, I want you to turn to the book of First Chronicles. Now, let me, let me, let me say something to you. Uh, as you know, if you're visiting with us this morning or you're not a regular attender, <clears throat> we are coming through the Bible book by book. First eight or nine months, we really began to try to lay out all of the preliminary stuff to help you build your own relationship with God. We're on a journey here. My journey is to bring the people that God gives us through the Bible, help you learn the Bible through all the events that we have, like we talked about earlier, and to really help you be either the husband to your wife, the wife to your husband, the parents to your kids, whatever your desire is to help you get to the place in your life where you become the man or the woman that God wants you to be. That's our goal. And each one of the books that we've been coming through, we have been laying them out so you get a handle on the Bible. But in doing so, in doing so, we find that there are great material in there about your own personal life. Last week, you remember we looked at the book of 1 Chronicles. And I showed you how that 1 Chronicles uh, lays out the line of David, David or the lineage of David. And then it shows you the life of David. And in doing so in a particular way, it shows us the character qualities of the Lord Jesus Christ. It shows, us, it shows us the hard attitude of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as you follow his life, <clears throat> chapter by chapter, we built on this last week. As you followed through with it, uh, we showed you how at the end, by chapter by chapter, the process for a man or a woman to build yourself into what God calls God's mighty men of valor. Men who, and women who were head and shoulders above the average person back in that time, translating to us, head and shoulders above the average Christian. People who learn the Bible, who operate by the Bible, who become Christ-like by learning how Christ was. And an incredible book that shows you the inner, inner makings of the man of God and the woman of God. I don't know of another book in the Bible. We stopped on the last two chapters, and, and I told you last week. And I know, I preached for, I guess Jason said, I preached for an hour. And, well, how long was it? 93 minutes last week. But what am I supposed to do? That book and them last two chapters, I don't know what to tell you. I mean, if you didn't get it last week, I mean, uh, you ain't going to get it. And I'm not saying you've got to go home and, and make it all happen, but you've got now the direction by which to do it. I'll help you put it together, okay? Now, today, 
we're going to study the book of 2 Chronicles. And 1 Chronicles and 2 Chronicles go together. They go together in a number of ways. First of all, when, now where 1 Chronicles is an inside commentary, and I told you this last week, of 1 and 2 Samuel. In other words, it is a running commentary of those two books. 2 Chronicles is a commentary on 1 and 2 Kings. Let me give you a little technical concept here. When Jeremiah, and he is the writer of 1 and 2 Kings, when Jeremiah writes 1 and 2 Kings, he gives us the royal view of man's reign over Israel, and he puts the emphasis on the thrones of the kings of Israel. Now, when it comes to 2 Chronicles, the book that goes along with what we're at today, you're going to find that Ezra writes that book. And when Ezra writes that book, he covers the same period of time, he covers many of the same events, but with a different emphasis. His emphasis is on the southern tribes and the building of the temple. But what we have here is this, and this is what I want to say, especially to your visitors today or people that are just maybe uh, here. Here's what you got. First and second chronicles go together. Where first chronicles shows you how to build the inward man. First Chronicles focuses on chapter by chapter of you building yourself to be God's mighty man of valor, inwardly. And we all know that that's what really makes a strong Christian, what's on the inside. Where First Chronicles focuses on what's on the inside, Second Chronicles focuses outwardly. And in Second Chronicles, we're going to see today what our job, once we become that mighty man of valor, is, and defining what our ministry is. So I'm saying all that to say this. I know if this is your first time here or, or you know, as some of you others, you know, you're, you're visiting on an irregular basis. I, I, if, if, if I can't do anything else for you, I want to do this. I want to give you, Jason, my Jason, I want to give them a copy of last week's tape and a copy of this week's tape. Those two books, if nothing else, and I never see you again, and I hope I do, but if we never cross again, those two books alone, I promise you, have all the material in it that you can find your relationship with God. Now, if I can help you do that, fine. But I never want, I always want, my job is to give out truth. And so I'm telling you, if you're here this morning and you're a visitor, or you're here this morning and you're someone that's been here before, but you're here today, uh, or you just want these, you see Jason back there, we'll give you last week's and this week's free of charge because I want you to have at least that much that wherever you go now, you'll have the material. And if I can help you put it together or you want to come back for more, that's between you and God. But I'm doing what my job is, and my job is to never put a price on truth. My job is to freely receive, freely give. And uh, I want you to have that today just for being here, and it'll make today's message make a little more sense than, than what I've got to say, though... I usually make sense with whatever I say, but sometimes it'll help put it all together. Okay? Now, let's look at the breakdown of this great book, Second Chronicles. It's real easy. They all are. And remember now, you want to put this in the beginning of your Bible just as we have all these other things. Chapter 1 through chapter 9, you're going to find very simply, it's going to talk about King Solomon's reign. It's going to display... His great wisdom. We're going to talk about some of these individually here. And it, it puts the emphasis on the temple being built. When you come chapter 10 to chapter 36, this will be the second aspect of it. The kingdom gets split. We find Rehoboam being made king. The kingdom is split. We find the decline of the nation of Israel. We find the temple destroyed. 
We find the various kings that bring about the demise, and then we find the exile begins. In fact, 2 Chronicles ends where 2 Kings end, because the two books uh, are to go together, and this book is a commentary on that, with the times of the Gentiles, which we've talked about already, and we'll talk about again briefly. Uh, But that's your breakdown. The breakdown of the book is real simple. That helps you at a glance, if you put it into your Bible, and many of you are getting the wide-margin Bibles that are study Bibles, uh, that puts it into that frame of reference for you, that you can, you can understand it as you go through it. Alright, now let's look at it in a little more detail. Chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, and chapter 5 deal with Solomon fulfilling what David charged him to do uh, in First Chronicles and the books we looked at last week. The building of God's house. And last week I told you, there's no greater study, and that's why I want to give it to you this morning so you have the balance. There's no greater study in all of the Bible that shows you how to build your relationship with God inwardly and what to look for. And I know I was lengthy last week, but I don't know what else to do. And uh, I will not be as long today, uh, at least I'm not planning to be that way, but, uh, but you've just got to get, sometimes you just got to get the material there. And I promise you, if you do what's right with it, and you follow through with it, you may be mad at me for going along last week, but the judgment seat of Christ, you'll come up and say, Bob, thanks for preaching for 92 minutes. And I'll just kind of look at you and I'll say, oh, you're the one that was mad at me back then, huh? Okay, no, just kidding. So, well, you begin to see it. Chapter 1 through 5, we deal with Solomon fulfilling what David charged him to do. In chapter 6, we find Solomon's great prayer and the dedication. And uh, we talked about this. What a great prayer that is. How he starts out standing in 1 Kings chapter 6, 7, and 8. And then at the end of the prayer, he's on his knees before God. Showing us the great spiritual concept of, of, uh, of Solomon as the king of Israel. In chapter 7, we see the great sacrifice of that dedication. Never in all the Bible is there another sacrifice that matches the incredibility of this sacrifice. 22,000 oxen are sacrificed that day. 120,000 sheep as they dedicated the temple to the Lord Jesus Christ and God the Father, which is a picture of the millennial temple which is going to be dedicated to Him uh, at at the second coming of Christ into the millennium. And then in chapter 8 and chapter 9, we see His great wisdom displayed, uh, typified by the Queen of Sheba coming to Him. And uh, we talked about that when we came through it. A lot of this material is the same. And I'm just kind of refreshing your memory as we move to the point we want to talk about today. And we find that that is a picture of the millennial reign of Christ. A time when Christ is on the throne, typified by Solomon, and then the Queen of Sheba, a Gentile, coming as the Gentiles will come in, as the Bible teaches throughout various places in the Old Testament, during that time, worshiping in Jerusalem, Jesus on the throne, David the prince, all covered for you from Ezekiel chapter 40 through chapter 48, the greatest eight chapters in the Bible that lay out the greatest period of time when Christ sits on that throne in Jerusalem and is crowned King of kings and the Lord of lords. Also in chapter 9, we saw the great... Uh, teaching that Solomon is unique because he's not only a type of Christ, he's a type of the Antichrist. And we saw in chapter 9, verse 13, where the weight of the gold is 666. And we talked about all of that. Then we come uh, to the division from chapter 10 to chapter 36. Now all this up to 9 is all about Solomon, and now we begin to see a change. In chapter, uh, we see Solomon goes off the throne, and in chapter 10 through chapter 12, we see his son Rehoboam taken over. 
In chapter 13, we see Jeroboam and Abijah. And all this is now, and I'm just kind of breezing through this to give you the material so you can put it at the top of the chapters of your Bible as you break the book down. Then we're going to come back. And, oh, I'm going to show you some things here in just a moment. We have chapter 14 and chapter 16, the story of Asa. Remember the guy that had disease in his feet? Instead of going to God with it, he went to the psychologist and the therapist and all of that and uh, tried to get it uh, fixed that way. And the Bible says that he died. God killed him because he didn't take it to God. We say in chapters 17 through 20, Jehoshaphat, Ahab, and Jezebel. We talked about that at great length. Chapter 21, Jehoram. Chapter 22 to 23, Azariah. Chapter 24, Joash. Chapter 25, Amaziah. Chapter 26, Uzziah. Chapter 27, Jotham. Chapter 28, Ahaz. Chapter 29 through 32, good king Hezekiah. And then his son in chapter 33, Manasseh. We covered that material. Then in chapter 34 to 35, we have the last king. We have Josiah. We have Jehoaz. We have Elikin. We have Jehodakin. We have Jehodiah. We have Zedekiah. And those bring us up to the end of the book. Now, Here's what I want to focus on. I already told you that last week, the book of 1 Chronicles shows you how to focus on the inward man, how to bend internally. My job is to take every young man, every young woman, every couple, every mom and dad, whoever wants to, and to teach them the Bible to bring you to the point where you become God's mighty man of valor. That you're a man or a woman that in these last days, of apostasy, just like Israel, can stand for God in a day and age when nobody wants to. And what I'm about to show you is quite incredible. And as I've already said, these two books lay it out and go hand in hand. And where First Chronicles shows you how to build yourself as God's man or God's woman, the book of Second Chronicles, as I've already stated, is a book that shows you what I as a Christian and you as a Christian are up against and how to take a mighty a stand as a mighty man of valor. One is inwardly, and one is outwardly. Now, these kings that we've just talked about, all of these men, they are the spiritual leaders of the nation of Israel at this time. They are the men who God has, uh, by decree, has given the command of the nation of Israel. And they are responsible for Israel's spiritual condition. They are to be the leaders... And we see them in chapter 10 through 36. I just listed them for you. We see them as the leaders of Israel that will either lead them to God in the Word of God or lead them away from God in the Word of God. And we see that they are responsible for Israel's spiritual condition. Now I've talked to you about this before. The great parallels between the nation of Israel and the church. How I know that one is in the Old Testament and one is in the New Testament. And there's hundreds of years between them, and I know that one is dealing with Israel, and one is dealing with the body of Christ. One is under the law, one is under grace. I understand all of that. But you know, if you know anything about the Bible, that God told us in the book of Corinthians that those things in the Old Testament were for our examples, were for our examples, and were for our admonition. That there are some things that we can learn from them. And this is why we need to be smarter than the world around us. We as God's people need to understand, and this is what makes somebody really uh, spiritually uh, mature as far as understanding the Bible. 
being able to go to the Bible, see the mistakes that somebody else made that God gave you by example, applying them to your own life so you don't make the same mistakes. That's what the Bible is all about. Now, the parallels we see here are incredible. And if these parallels hold true, that Israel and the things and the leadership and the spiritual condition picture the leadership and the spiritual condition that we are in in the church today. And don't forget, Israel in the last days, before God's judgment came, very important, were in the days of Israel right before God's judgment falls on this world. And the apostasy of the nation and the leaders of that nation, religiously, total disarray. We are living in a day and age, the Bible says, right before God's coming judgment. We too are in a time of apostasy. We too are in a time when the church and Christianity is in total disarray. There's many, many questions in Christians' hearts today and fears because of uncertainty of the times that we live in. And let me just say this to you. There is no uncertainty about the times we live in. Not if you know your Bible. Not if you have somebody giving you the Word of God or you can go to and lay out and you can find every fear laid out in the Word of God and put the rest because of what the Bible says. And if these parallels hold true, and I know that they do, we need to study these men's lives, or you need to study these men's lives, because they show you what is wrong with the leadership, not in our country. We know that. They're unsaved. But within Christianity. Now, we are in the mess we are in in America because of our leadership. And we as Christians, we like to blame the problems we have on the leadership of our country. And the problems are many in America. I look at the, we look at the political state of America and it's pretty much a joke. We look at the, the homosexuality and the lesbianism and the, the concept that, I mean, do we even have to have a vote anywhere that says same-sex marriages are wrong? No, but in the world that we live in today, there's a question mark after that. That becomes a problem. Drugs. Drugs are unprecedented. In Colombia, they raise drugs like they raise corn in Iowa. It's incredible. Terrorism. Well, I heard very, this morning that great detailed plans to blow up something else in New York City. And around this country, people, I don't care what your leaders say, people get up and they're afraid. Man, I mean, I'll tell you what, it's scary times we live in. And you know, you don't know if you should, I mean, the, the kids, in, when we grew up, you had some bad kids in high school. But come on. I don't remember a time when I grew up, if any kid bringing a gun to school and putting a conspiracy together to kill his teachers and other kids around him, um, you're afraid as a parent to send your kid to school. So we think that sending them to a private school or a Christian school or whatever is the answer, and that's not the answer. Oh, we live in terrifying times. We live in a day and age where marriages fall apart 
Because they have no substance. People get married today without ever understanding or contemplating what the Bible says, what a husband's role should be to his wife or the wife to her husband. And consequently, we live in a day and age where when the newness wears off, when the shininess is gone, when there's no more, you know what, that it, the marriage is over. There's nothing binding in our country today. There's nothing binding in our families. We're losing our children like, like casualties of war. Parents who, who go to church and supposed to believe the Bible and, and all of these things. Their, their kids are growing up. I don't want to go to church. I don't want to do this. And they lose control over them because we've lost control in this world. Drunkenness, crime, you name it. And we as Christians are quick to blame the world. We want to blame the people in Washington because of the crime rate, because of the immorality rate, because of the same sex and all this stuff. We look to our leaders and we, preachers in the pulpit this morning, are taking political sides because they think that God represents one side and the other side is represented by the devil. So we're going to take this guy versus this guy because this guy has standards and this guy has morals and this guy has all the things that will put this country back to where it needs to be. And I want to tell you something. That is the biggest mistake anybody on the face of this planet could make. In teaching and training leaders, and I've done it all my life, you're not talking to somebody at this point that doesn't know what he's talking about. I may not know how to fix my car. I may not know how to do this or do that. And I may not be how, I, I, I may not know how to do much. But I know how to take a man and a woman and bake them and teach them from the Bible standpoint to be the leader that God wants them to be. And there's an old axiom in leadership training. And it's so true. And it's simply this. Everything, everything, everything rises and falls on leadership. If it fails, it's because the leader who is in charge didn't follow through. If your family fails or your marriage fails, I'm telling you right now, husbands, you are designated as the leader. And your marriage will rise and fall on that leadership. If you lose your kids, I'm telling you right now, you can blame whoever you want. How many times I've had a parent say to me, my kids are problem, causing problems in my home. To which I respond, kids don't cause problems in the home. Kids just reveal the problems that are already there. Leadership. Leadership. Everything rises and falls on leadership. And that's why for the nation of Israel... They fell apart because of the leadership, spiritually. And I'm telling you right now, my Bible tells me, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 13, when Jesus himself was speaking, he said, Ye are the salt of the world. And then he said this, If the salt lose its savor, salt is a preservative. Salt preserves. Salt is likened to the Word of God. And what he's saying is that Christians, it's the leadership Christians that preserve anything that is decent. How can you and I expect the unsaved world to maintain a line of morality? I promise you, 
The thing that made this country great a hundred years ago was not the government. It was corrupt then. Whatever party you were in, it was as corrupt then as it is now. The thing that made a difference then is you had men in the pulpit who were not diggly-dallying in politics, but were stepping in that pulpit, taking that book, and preaching the preserving truth of that book that preserved this nation. It was men in leadership positions that weren't becoming part of a a, a political plan. They were part of a biblical plan that took moms and dads, young men and young ladies, women and men, and trained them in the Bible to be leaders, to be mighty men of valor, first with each other, then their children, and then to the world. Inwardly first, first Chronicles, outwardly second, second Chronicles. He says in the book of Colossians, when Paul wrote that book, remember now, the book of Colossians matches up to the Laodicean church period, which is where we're at. You find Laodicea mentioned five times in the book of Colossia. He says in 4, 6, let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer every man. The problems in this country are not caused by the political leaders. They're not caused by the John Kerry's. They're not caused by the George Bush's. They're not caused by Frank Nader. They're not caused by any political man or any, any demise. It isn't caused by Larry Flint. It isn't caused by all the people out there that we look at that we want to blame for America's downfall. The problem lies in churches, in pulpits, in pastors of not getting into that pulpit and preaching that book. That book is salt. That book is a preservative. It'll preserve your marriage. It'll preserve your family. And it will preserve any country, any nation. And the problem lies in the leadership. Our pastors today, just like the leaders of Israel, have left the power of Almighty God. Those kings are like our spiritual leaders. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 5, Paul faced this crowd all the way back in the New Testament when he said this, They have a form of godliness, but they deny the power thereof. Let me tell you something. If you went back to the book of 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles, and walked in Manasseh's reign, or you walked in Jehoiakim's reign, or you walked in Josiah's reign, or whoever you want to pick, if you walked into their life and their kingdom, you would see God, you would see all the concepts of God, you would see men praying to God, you would see pictures of this and that, you'd see all the things representative of God. The only thing you wouldn't see or feel or experience is the power of God. Why? It was all a sham. It was all a show. It has switched from being spiritual to becoming political. It has switched from being the power of God which changed people's lives to a form of godliness without that power. And that's what we've got today. I'm not mad at anybody. I'm not picking on anybody. I've mentioned no names. I will not mention any names. I don't care. I just know what my job is. My job is to take you. Every young man, every young lady, everybody that wants to learn that Bible, every mom and dad, every couple, I don't care, and make sure you get the best shot at your marriage and raising your kids in a world that wants to destroy them. And I'm telling you, that's why parents are afraid today. That's why they're afraid of this. And I'll tell you something else. I don't know what you know about the Bible. don't know how much time you spend. But you look at guys like Jehoiakim. You look guys like Jeff and I. 
You look at guys like Josiah. You look at guys like Jehoram, Jotham, Joaz, Joash. Do you ever notice how they all start with J? You know how they all start with J? And they have E and O and H in them. You know why? Because those words are derivatives of the word Jehovah. Those men had God in their names. They are, those names are derivatives, and when you go back and get the meaning of their names, Jehovah is found in their name. They're just like the leaders today that say that they're following God. These men had Jehovah in their name, and the Bible says that they're far away from God. Gives whole new light and meaning to the third commandment. You know what the third commandment is? Exodus chapter 20, verse 7, it simply says this, Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. All your life, you were taught that meant swearing. Had nothing to do with swearing. Every, all my life, I've heard preachers get up and rant and wail. Thou, you shouldn't cuss. You shouldn't take God, and you shouldn't. And they'd always quote that verse. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. And when you take God's name and use it in a swear word, you're taking his name in vain. No, 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 no. When you take God's name as a child of God and do nothing with it, you've taken it in vain. You got saved. He gave you his name. You're Christian. Christian. Little Christ. Christ. Christian. He lives inside you. You took his name. And just like the leaders in, in 2 Chronicles, they had Jehovah in his name. But they didn't have him in their heart. So many of God's people, and especially the leaders in Christianity today, have taken God's name. And oh, they like to stand before the throngs of people and display how much they know about God and their great, all their great. But I'm telling you something, that doesn't cut it when the rubber hits the road, when you've got problems in your life and they're too busy being the main chandelier in the ballroom to come over and shine a light on your back porch. How many times I've heard this story of people in churches having problems. And they go to the pastor, and the pastor's too busy to talk to them. How many times I've heard the story over, over, and over, and over again, a thousand times in five, five years. Some little couple go to that church, faithfully attend, tithe to that church, give to that church, and then something happens in their own family, in their own life. Some catastrophe revolves them. Some problem. Or they just want to learn the Bible. And they're, when they go in and talk, if they can even talk to him, you've got to run with him down the hall because he's busy going to some big meeting that he's got. We have lost the spiritual leadership in this country. And I've not mentioned any names. I don't have any names in mind. I just know the way it works. I've been in this business 35 years. I'm not some novice. I've seen how it goes. I know how it goes. And I know that most pastors today are busy pastoring inanimate objects. Now, when you have a problem, they'll subcontract you out to somebody else. And these men, these men with God in their name, oh, they've taken God's name in vain, but they've taken it. They've taken God's name, but they have taken it in vain. And I ask you today as a child of God, only something that you can examine. If you're saved this morning, you have taken His name. The question is, have you taken it in vain? God in this chapter shows the attitude of heart of each man. I mean, when you come down through each king, 
You actually see, God actually lays out for you their attitude of heart about the two greatest and most vital concepts in all of history of the Bible, whether in the New Testament or the Old Testament, and that is, number one, the Word of God, and number two, the God Himself. And I list them in the order of their importance, according to the Word of God. And right in the middle, if you thought I was stretching all that, right in the middle, if you thought I was just putting all these things and wasn't making the right, if you thought right in the middle of this book, in 2 Chronicles chapter 15, look at it. Verse 1, oh, you can't miss it. Incredible. What we're dealing with here is a picture of the leadership of the nation of Israel that led them spiritually wrong. Now we've got the problem we've got today. Men in the pulpit. Christians in churches. That don't believe the Bible anymore. Won't take a stand on the Bible anymore. That are not interested in building people's lives. He says in 15.1. And the Spirit of God came upon Azariah the son of Oded. And he went out to meet Asa and said unto him. Hear ye me Asa. And all Judah and Benjamin, the Lord is with you while ye be with him. And if you seek him, he will be found of you. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. Now you see who Ace is? He's the leader. See how it all, everything rises and falls on leadership? He said to that king, if you seek him, you'll find him and he'll bless you. If you don't, you won't find him. Now look at this. Oh boy. Verse 3, here we are. Now for a long season, Israel has been without the true God and without a teaching priest and without law. But way in their trouble did turn unto the Lord God of Israel and sought him. He was found of them. He said, for a long season, Israel has been without the true God. Yet God is everywhere. These men have Jehovah in their names. But he's not there. Without a teaching priest, the teaching of the people, the Word of God, had ceased to be the most important aspect of Israel's existence. They're busy now with political things. The king is busy now being the king. Oh, it's a far shy from Solomon when he knelt down and asked God, asked him what he wanted. He said, just give me the ability to teach my people be like you. But now we've been a long season without a true God, without a teaching preach, and without the law. I'm telling you, welcome to the nation of Israel in 787 B.C. And welcome to the state of Christianity in 2004 A.D. Oh, if there ever was a day for the need of mighty men of valor, if there ever was a day for moms and dads to say, I'm going to learn that Bible, I'm going to learn it for my children. I'm going to learn it. I'm going to learn it for my marriage. I want truth. I want to build my marriage based on the Word of God. I want to be the best husband I can be. I want to be the best wife I can be. I want to be the best mom and dad to my child. I don't want that child growing up. And I don't want somebody else, Sunday school teacher, winning that kid to the Lord. I, I, I want to be the one. I want to learn how to be sensitive to my children. I want to be learned. I want them to train them up in the right way. I don't want them when they grow up to be faced with the world. I don't want them to grow up wanting to do the things of the world more than the things of God. How does that happen? It happens by mom and dad doing what the Bible says and building their individual relationship and their marriage and their children. And by the way, let me just say this. 
Your marriage will only be as strong as your individual personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Your family will only be as strong as your marriage. And it all goes back to your one-on-one relationship with the Lord Jesus. Oh, in this great chapter we see it. We see why God said in Ezekiel chapter 22 verse 33, that Ezekiel writes, right at this time, he's coming into his own. And he wrote in chapter 22, verse 3 of the book of Ezekiel, he said that God was looking for a man that would make up the hedge, that would stand in the gap. But he couldn't find any. Oh, I'm telling you, ladies and gentlemen, you may not believe me. It may take you to get into the judgment seat of Christ before you get your head screwed on straight. I don't know. But I'm telling you this. We live in a time when the parallels with the nation of Israel right before God's judgment fell. We're living in the Laodicean church right before the rapture of church and God's judgment's going to fall. And I'm telling you, we're in the same boat they were back then. The leadership has corrupted themselves spiritually. Not the president. Not the... Those guys, they're just... They've always been part of... I'm talking about the men and a leadership spiritually. You just go to the Christian, next Christian bookstore you want to find. You bring me any ten books you can find and we'll sit down with the Bible and we'll find out they're biblical or not it's a good test it's a good test but there's a better one coming i'll show you the next one coming up here in just a minute all right then we come to chapter 34 in chapter 34 we got a man we got to look at here remember i told you now i told you that first chronicles deals with you inwardly it shows you how to build what god wants you to build that's why I want to give anybody that wants it both tapes. Just stop on your way out. We'll get them for you. But the bottom line is this. Now we come to see outwardly. And what we have in this man called Josiah. Josiah means supported by Jehovah. You see it's got the J-O in his name. Jehovah. Supported by they're all that way. Bible says in verse 1 and 2 of chapter 34 that Josiah did what was right. He walked in the ways of David his father. He turned neither right nor left. Josiah is the bright spot in this time. You know what that shows me? That shows me no matter how bad the leadership and spirituality comes, that shows me no matter how dark it gets and how polluted Christianity becomes and how misdirected and how much disarray it is that God still can find a few men and a few women that are willing to stand up in this darkness and say, you know what, God, I will be. I will be the man you want me to be. I won't put my trust in the confidence of man. I'll put my trust in the confidence of that book. I'll I'll be the man you want me to be. I won't play the political game. I'll find out what you love and I'll begin to love that. I'll train my family. I'll raise my kids. I'll do what's right. I'll do everything I need to do. Josiah is that man. For it says in verse 3, For in the eighth year of his reign, while he was young, he began to seek after the God of David his father. Oh, there's so much in that verse. So much about raising your children in that verse. So much about you. See, some of you right now, you've just come into this church, and though you may be 25, 26, 27, 28, 40, 50, 55, 60, 65, 70, ready or not, here he comes. No matter where you're at, the Bible says that in God's mind, if you're just beginning to learn some things about God and really want to learn the Bible, you're still young and tender. You're still young and tender. My whole life is built around people that come in and they... They embrace truth. And then they have a response to that truth. And old Josiah, he embraced truth. He was like David his father. If you come down through verses 4 and 7, you'll find he's a bail kicker. 
He goes down and he tears down the temples of Baal. He rips them up. He, he is. He's a good man. He, he takes out the false stuff that is pretending. And he tries to, he tries to in verse 8 through 14, he, he begins to rebuild. Look at this. Or you don't have to look, listen to me. Maybe you're not there. He begins to rebuild God's house. You know why? Because God's house is in terrible disarray. And he tries to rebuild God's house based on God's word. That's all I'm doing. I look at Christianity and I see it for what it is. I know where the problem lies. And I know I'm not going to solve the world problem. And I know Bob Alexander isn't the answer to it. But let me just say this to you in a popular time. My name is Bob Alexander and I approve of this message. <laughs> I know where the answer's at. I mean, everybody else does it. Why can't I? <laughs> I know where it's at. I don't want you to get the idea that I'm down here as the expert. I'm not an expert. I've made as many screwed up mistakes in my life as you have. I don't look at myself as better than you. I've told you that before. I don't look at it that way. We are in this thing together. I have the same struggles that you have. I have the same passions that you have. I have the same things I have to deal with that you do. I had to put my kids on the line and raise them right or mine would have been gone. And the jury's not out on mine because the Bible says the real jury is an end to your grandkids. But I know where the answer is. And I know that that Bible is truth. And all I'm trying to do in all my frailties and all my human mess that I am is I understand what this story represents. I understand First Chronicles and Second Chronicles and how it fits inwardly and outwardly. And honestly, what I'm trying to do in this little church, I'm not looking to build a thousand people. Maybe God will do that. That ain't my goal. My goal, I never look beyond tomorrow. I'm looking at one person at a time. I look at what God gives me, the people God brings in who want to do what's right, who want to learn the Bible, and my job, as best as I can do it, just like old Josiah, is to try to rebuild God's house with the Word of God right in the middle of a disarray. In chapter 34 through chapter 35, we have a picture of our work typified through a man called Josiah, a man who was a light in the darkness. A man who tried to rebuild God's house and bring it out of the destructive mode that it was in, repair the disarray. He's not a great king. You'll never hear him toted anywhere else in all of the Bible. He's one of those little guys, just like you and me who just got a glimpse of the Word of God and what God wanted him to do and build it inwardly first and then try to build it outwardly second. That's all I'm here for. That's all we're here for. We're in this together. But oh, when you study his life, and turn with me if you would, the Second Chronicles chapter 34. We're going to blow through here. We're in great shape today time-wise. I got part two of this message I may throw in as a trailer here. Just kidding you. Just kidding you. But I, there's some things here that I think we need to see. Now, here's the storyline. Israel's been in a mess. Bible said, we've already looked at it in chapter 15, 
They've been a long time with a true, without a true God. They've been a long time without a teaching priest. And they've been a long time without the law. They're a lawless nation. They're a nation that has a form of godliness, but deny the power that's inside. They're powerless. And yet, they're a gigantic kingdom. You know why? Because once you lose God's power, because of our pride, we have to build everything up to make it look like it's real when it isn't. And that is the stupidest thing we could ever do in our lives. There's so many holes in that. that I mean, everybody in the world knows what's going on but you. But here's little Uzziah, or Josiah. Here's little Josiah, just a little guy. And he's down here, and he's the king. And all the story that takes place is a story that took place in Bob Alexander's life. It's a story that started a journey for me some 35 years ago that I'm still on. It's a journey that includes many of you. It's a journey that many of you have just gotten into in the last year. But we're on that journey. And it'll maybe help you understand a little bit better what Old Paths Baptist Church is all about, what I'm about, and what the Word of God's about. Josiah was just a guy that wanted to rebuild the house of God in a time when it was in terrible disarray. And he's down there, and look at verse 14. Four or five things here we got to see. Oh, this is, these are incredible. But here it comes. You want to know what your work is? I'll show you very simply. This is why Bob Alexander is not interested in building a big building. This is why I'm not interested in having 25,000 people come and hear me preach. I'm completely satisfied with just what God has given me this time. And as it grows, it grows. I'll, you'll see how it's got to go here. I'm getting ahead of myself. Let me come back to my thoughts here. I'm really excited right now, and I'm about to lose control. But I'm <laughs> going to get a grip. Verse 14. And when they brought out the money that was brought into the house of the Lord, Hilkiah, the priest, found a book of the law of the Lord given by Moses. And Hilkiah answered and said to Shephpan, the scribe, I found the book. I found the book. I found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah delivered the book to Shephan. First thing that happened in this little guy's life is the first thing that happened in my life. 35 years ago. In a time in Christianity when it was so dark and everybody in the world was too busy and Christianity was shining brightly without God. God loved me so much. God cared about me so much. And I found a book. I found a book. I found a book. You know who taught me the Bible? He's well up in his 80 years right now. His name is Mel Sabaka. The first time I met Mel Sabaka, I was a 14-year-old kid. And I didn't like him. Of course, I was pretty lawless in my life at that point. And I don't even know how I got to this roller skating party that the church was having. I don't remember how I got, I mean, I, I mean, obviously, it wasn't like God picked me up, brought me over there. I mean, you know, I'm not, wasn't that, I'm not, it wasn't that spooky. I just don't remember the details. But I do remember that 
He was real young then. Oh, this was back in 54. Oh, no, that was four years old, 54. This was back in 64. And I'll never forget. They were all skating around there, and I gravitated it over to the pinball machine. Now, I know that today pinball machines are no big deal. I'm not even sure they were a big deal back then. But they, it was like back then, you know, the world, the country, the United States was more prim and proper. When you went to church back then, you wore a suit and tie. Now, I don't think you need to wear a suit and tie. I don't like to wear a suit and tie. And I, but I know preachers, if you don't wear a suit and tie, you're, you're not saved. I have, a bath, I have a preacher friend of mine that he was so hung up on those things that when he would go skiing in Colorado, he thought that his Christian testimony was built on how good he looked. And I don't mean in a vain way. I mean suit and tie was the cloth, was the clothes for a preacher. This guy wore a tie and suit underneath his, his, his ski suit. Now, I'm not kidding you. But back then, the world was a little different. Pinball machines, it was, it, was, it was associated with Yul Brynner in the movie, you know, the wild one, you know, with the motorcycle guy. And, and you know, and juvenile delinquents were, were uh, juvenile delinquents today are nothing. I mean, they're, you mean give them a sniff of a bar rag, they'd pass out. Back in my day, juvenile delinquents were something. I mean, you wore the motorcycle boots with the buckles on the side. You rolled your pant legs up. You know, you didn't wear them down to here. What is that all about? <laughs> uh, you're okay. I wasn't meaning you. I was just meaning you got blue jeans off. But well, I see these guys walking around, man, and their rear ends hanging out. I'm thinking to myself, what is that? I mean, if a house caught on fire, you'd be dead because you never get out. You'd trip over your own pant leg trying to get out. What is that? No, if you're going to be a juvenile delinquent, get cigarettes. You've got to roll them into your T-shirt thing here. You want to walk around, let them know, you know. And you let the red lucky strikes, because back then everybody smoked lucky strikes. You know, you got to let that thing out there. And he said, oh, he's, a, he's a lucky strike man, yeah. And you got the wallet with a chain on it, you know. Little black boots, hair slicked back. Those days are gone. <clears throat> I get a haircut now. He doesn't charge me for cutting it. He charged me for looking for it. <clears throat> but I'm over there at the pinball machine, and old Mel comes up, and he says, Hey, he says, save your money. Just like that. Rough guy. And he was tough. Save your money. Go out here and skate. Or go home. Well, I didn't like that. You see, at that point in my life, I didn't like authority. And that was my first meeting. You know what? Make a long story short, that was my first. You know what? Sometimes the first time we met, you didn't like me. You didn't like the way I said. Maybe you didn't like I was loud. You know, and, and somebody said, does that ever bother you that people, when you first meet them, don't like you? And I say, no, because most people I meet the first time I don't like. It's an easy deal. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I'm a people person. I love everybody. But I understand. You see, I didn't like him the first time. But through the process of time, gave me the book and the most happiest years of my life as a young man were spent driving around Ohio with him leading singing for him while he preached and on those long journeys and I'd go to work the next morning I mean I had a job you know 
I mean, I had to get up at 6 o'clock, be at work the next morning, and I'd, we'd drive down to Liverpool, Ohio, three hours one way, you know, and he'd preach. We'd go out to eat. I'd get back at home at 2 o'clock in the morning and have to get up for work the next morning. But you know what? I wouldn't have missed those times in the world because on those way down and back, I got to ask him about the book. He gave me the book. 35 years ago in my life, a man took in me in his life, and he said, Son, this is what the book says, and this is what the world says, and I want to give you that book. You know who gave him the book? In 1950, he had just graduated from Kent State University, got his degree, and was chaplain of a penal detention home for juvenile delinquents. In fact, the irony of that is, some years later when I got saved, God made me the same chaplain to the same place. And for seven or eight years, Barb and I worked there. In fact, that's where I met Barb. She had gotten out that day and we had... <laughs> you knew that was coming, didn't you, honey? Huh? Just, she just knew that was coming. And I met her. I said, honey, are you, are, are you high? No. We went in a revolving door at Macy's. We've been going around together ever since. So, uh, but anyway... It was a wild deal. But you know what? He was, he was a young guy in his 20s, saved, but disillusioned with all of the disarray of Christianity. And he met a man, Peter S. Ruckman. Peter S. Ruckman said to Mel Sabaka, Mel, there's an absolute standard. There's a book. You know where Pete got it from? He got out of the Army in 1943, 1948, something like that, 47 it was. And he met a man named old Bob Jones Sr., Old Bob Jones, old Pete, come out of that military. He he had seen all the he had seen all the phoniness, he'd see all the phoniness. He was saved, tried to get to learn the Bible. He saw all the phoniness that was going on, and an old man by the name of Bob Jones Sr. got him aside and said, "Pete, there's an absolute book." He found the book. Because he found the book, Mel found the book. Because Mel found the book, I found the book. Because I found the book, you found the book. My point is this. If your Christianity and your love of that book isn't contagious, then it's contaminated. We don't have a sign out front. Go through the phone book. You'll never find her. Don't get on the website. We're not there. I'm not against any of those things. But I want to tell you the truth, ladies and gentlemen. In the book of Acts, they taught house to house. And here's how I feel about it. I'm not saying I won't have a sign someday. I'm not saying I won't have a website. I'm not saying I won't do it. I'm just saying. How I really feel about it is this. The best advertisement any church can have is for somebody who found the book to go tell somebody else, I found the book. That's how you found it. That's how I found it. He comes down here and he says, I found the book. Hey, God is obligated to get it to you. You're obligated to receive it. And then pass it on. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2 says, Paul said, The thing that thou hast heard of me, commit the faithful men 
who shall be able to teach others also. That's all this is. I'm not any better than you. I just found a book. And the thing that Josiah did that started this whole thing is somebody ran in and said, Hey, King, I found a book. I found a book of the Lord. I found a book of the law that Moses wrote. And it changed his life. Because now, in the middle of the darkness, in the middle of the phoniness, he had an absolute standard that came from God. And in the middle of all this, that's why you don't have to fear it. That's why you don't have to fear it, Mom and Dad, if you just get that book and you learn that book. He says in verse 15, I found the book. Look at verse 18 and 19. Then Shapan, the scribe, told the king, saying, Hilkiah, the priest, hath given me a book. And Shapan read it before the king. And it came to pass, when the king heard the words of the law, he rent his clothes. Second thing I see from this, once you find the book, or once he found the book, once I found the book, the next thing that took place that I realized what I really had. I had God's word. You see, he rent his clothes. That means he ripped them. That means he tore them. Why? Because in the Old Testament, that's a picture of a man knowing that what he's been part of is wrong. That's a man coming to his point where the Bible in this case has showed him the true condition. And he can't stand it before God. And it's a picture of you. Oh, what a different comparison this is to Ahab and old Micaiah that I told you about last week. Or two weeks ago. Josiah rent his clothes because the book of the Lord showed him the true condition of the nation of Israel. And it, it, he, he rent his clothes in disarray because he said, Oh, my God, I've got to do something. We're in sin. Now, once you find that book, when you realize what it has, you come to the same conclusion that Paul came to in 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 13. For this cause also, thank we God without ceasing. For when you receive the word of God, you received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. Not only did he find it, and that he realized what he had, and it affected his attitude of heart that he rent his clothes. But look at verse 26 and 27. And as for the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, so shall ye say unto him, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, concerning the words which thou hast heard. Let me just stop there. He tells him to say, Thus saith the Lord. That is proof positive in the Old Testament that what is coming forth is absolutely exactly what God wanted to say. You'll find that a prophet of God in the Old Testament, a true prophet, will always preface what he says by saying, Thus saith the Lord. When you find a prophet that does not say it, you've got a false prophet. Because thine heart was tender, and I just humbled thyself before God when thou heardest his words against this place and against the inhabitants. The word of God that he had was written against the place, Israel, and against the inhabitants. Why? Because they had a form of godliness. That's why men don't like that Bible. That's why God's people don't like it. You've got to get past the fact that it's written against you and me in all of our sin. Hey, the love of the honeycomb, even the bitter things are sweet, the Bible says. He has the right attitude about it. He has the right attitude. He understands that that book is the number one thing in this world. 
He understands like Paul understood. And Paul, I mean, he understands that higher education, as far as the Bible's concerned, is not the key. It's your attitude of heart and the tenderness and the humbleness of it. You come to God like a little child. Well, the greatest example in the Bible, how could anybody miss it? The greatest example in the Bible. The greatest example in the Bible is Paul himself. When he stood in Acts chapter 22 before making his defense, he talked about the fact that he was taught, taught by Gamaliel in Acts chapter 5, who was a doctor of the law of the Pharisees, the very best legal mind from the Pharisee standpoint, steeped in all of the traditions of religion in Israel's day. Paul says he was taught the perfect manner of the law. He was a Roman citizen. The Bible says in Philippians chapter 3, verses 5, 6, and 7, he says, I was circumcised the eighth day. I was of the tribe of Benjamin. I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. I was a Pharisee with the law. I was a Roman citizen. Paul was the elite of the elite, religiously. He'd been to every college. He had every degree. He had all the head knowledge about God that this whole world's got today. But his life was not changed until he met him on the road to Damascus. Oh, my dear friend, you must see this today. Your family's at stake. Your children's at stake. It wasn't Gamaliel that changed his life. It was the Lord on the road to Damascus when he gave his word that changed his life. So much that down in Philippians chapter 3, verse 8, when Paul recounts it, he said, all of these things that I've got, all the teaching, all the training, he says, I look at it like it's dung compared to what God gave me. You've got to see it, that book, as God sees it. Then in verse 31, he says this, And the king stood in his place and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and with his solace soul to perform the words of the covenant which are written in this book. The next thing is he did is he settled it in his heart. He said, there ain't nothing else out there that I need. Psalm 119, verse 89 says, Thy word is settled in heaven. He come to the place just like I did. Just like you're going to have to. When you realize the book that God gave you is the absolute final authority, no matter what anybody thinks about it. I was driving over here this morning, my wife and I, in this little church down here on, on, uh, on Nolan Road. And they've always got stupid little things out there. Those tricky little things that they put on there to try to make you want to go to church there. Maybe someday we'll have some. <laughs> and they always got, you know, somebody a little quimper quote from everybody. And I was driving down there all week long. They've had, I mean, I, I look at them. Sometimes they are good. I got to admit to that. Sometimes, you know, and, and they're tricky little things that make you think. If they don't make you think, they make you wreck your car because you're looking at them and the guy stopped in front of you. And all kinds of things, you know. I mean, one of the ones up there, you know, God is real. No, that's tricky. That's deep. That's good. Write that down. Driving down there today, I saw this. God said it. I believe it. That settles it for me. Right there in a little marquee. I thought to myself, you know what? That's the way I look at those things today. You know what the truth of the matter is? God said it. That settles it. It doesn't make any difference whether you believe it or not. You think God's truth and being settled 
depends on whether you and I accept it or not. He's absolute. He's supreme. The thing that I have to come to and grip with is that book is the absolute final authority of all things and faith and practice in my life. And when I don't like it, I better learn to like it because that's the way that it is. We got this idea that if you don't agree with it, it can't be true. I got some news for you. It isn't God said it, I believe it, and that settles it. It's the fact that God said it, that settles it. Whether you believe it or not, it's your problem. He says, I made a covenant with God about His Word. Have you? In your heart right now this morning, I don't expect you to know everything about the Bible. I don't know everything about the Bible. But I know this. I know even the things I don't understand about it. And you could take me in there and ask me questions that I couldn't answer. And the fact that I couldn't answer only means that I'm stupid, that God is still right on the money. It's settled with me. I'm not interested in PhDs. I'm not interested in, in all of those things. I know that intellect has nothing to do with the Bible. I know that isn't your, I know that isn't your aptitude that develops your altitude. It's your attitude. It's what you have in your heart toward God. And in verse 31, old Josiah, it was settled for him. It was settled in his heart. And he said, God, I'm making a covenant with you. And in the Old Testament, when they made a covenant, it was like a rock-solid bonded deal. God, I'm making a covenant that that book in this time of disarray, when my country's in a mess, and all the literally spiritual leaders are a joke, I'm going to make a covenant with you. No matter what happens, I'm going to stick with that book. Then in verse 30, almost done. And the king went up unto the house of the Lord, and all the men of Judah, and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and the priests, and the Levites, and all the people, great and small. And he read in their ears the words of the book, and the covenant that was found in the house of the Lord. You know what he did then? We've already talked about this. He went and told others what he found. You see, I don't want to hit this one too hard, but I want you to understand it. The litmus test for the child of God is your response to truth. My Bible says in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, that the Word of God is quick, powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of the soul and the spirit, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Now that Bible says that that book that you've got in your lap, if you've got the right book, is a discerner of your thoughts and your intents. And then it goes on to say this, neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, his sight, how can that book be his? It's a piece of paper with writing on it. No, no, that book is a lie because it's God's Word. And the fact that that book can discern, the fact that the book is called a his, and a little bit later on it says, but all things are naked and open under the eyes of him, which we have to do, shows you that that book is the incarnate mind of Christ, and that book will judge you in a world that wants to stand in judgment of it. Truth is the great two-edged sword that slices down in our lives and separates and exposes what we say we are, what we think we are, from what we really are. And if your relationship with God and His Word isn't contagious, it's contaminated. My ministry is nothing more than exposing people to the truth. My people, my job is exposing people to the, to the litmus test of truth. And then they have to deal with it. And I'm telling you, that's why the greatest draw for people to build a church today is not the website 
all the things we've talked about, the greatest draw, and the thing that will make this church what God wants it to be is in any advertisement we take out, it'll be the people that are in it that believe in what you have. And you know what, very frankly, if you don't believe it enough to tell somebody else about it, then we ought to question why we're really here today. Because that's the bottom line. You know what? And I'm not saying everybody you meet is going to come. I know from my own personal life, in the world we live in, you've got to go through 20 people to find one. And I know this. I know a lot of this ministry has to do, and I know this is true. I know this is true. I've been in this thing for 35 years, and I'm just going to tell you some things that I know is true. And I'm telling you this. When people come to church, and they don't like the way I preach, or they don't like the way things are, or they don't like this, or they don't like that, Nine times, and I'm not saying you can't do something, I can't do something to offend somebody. We all are stupid, we can do that. But I'm saying this, a lot of things that people say they offend them, and I'm not coming back, is nothing more than, you know what, I looked, tra- I looked truth right in the face, and I blinked. I didn't want to do what's right. Oh, I want to go to church, I want to be satisfied, I want to be happy, I want to be, have a good feeling about myself, but you know what, I really don't want to get that involved with a Bible and a personal relationship with God that forces me to deal with the issues in my life. I don't want a book that discerns my heart. I don't want a book that looks down in the depths of my soul. I don't want a book that doesn't allow me to see myself the way I want to see myself. I don't want a book that exposes me to a truth test that shows me in my heart what I really am now that's tough to get past and none of us really like that starting out but I'm telling you once you get there oh it's the greatest feeling in the world truth the great test of where you're at in your own personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ for a long time they were without the true God a teaching priest and the law. The last thing is this, and I'm done. 35 verse 1, chapter 35 verse 1. Moreover, Josiah kept the Passover unto the Lord in Jerusalem, and they killed the Passover on the 14th day of the first month. And he had set the priest in their charges and encouraged them to the service of the house of the Lord. And, I, and said unto the Levites that taught all Israel, which were holy unto the Lord, put the holy ark in the house which Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, did build. Ye shall not be a burden upon your shoulders. Serve now the Lord your God and his people. The last thing I want you to see is this. I don't know if you know this or not. you got to mark this in your Bible at some point. This is the last place where you find the Ark of the Covenant in the Bible. Now there's lots of theories about where that Ark went. All kinds of stories how the Queen of Sheba, who fell in love with Solomon, smuggled it out and took it down into Africa someplace, and it's there today. Men have even spent their whole lives looking down there for it. The easiest explanation is Indiana Jones in the Temple of Doom. <laughs> if I would believe anything other than the Bible, I believe that probably, yes, it is in a big warehouse in Washington with everything else that's important that nobody can find. <laughs> Next time you find it, Next time you find the ark, Revelation chapter 11, verse 19, don't turn to it, it's up in heaven. You see what that ark represented was God. And this is very important. In fact, it's probably the most important thing I've said all morning. 
So if you've been sleeping up to now, please wake up for this, and then you can go back to sleep. But let me just say, this is probably the most important thing, because that ark represented God. God gave Israel the ark because that ark was a place where God, on the mercy seat, met with man. In the Old Testament, before the time of Solomon, it was carried in the tabernacle tent that they tore down and they put up that's given all the descriptions of in the book of Exodus. Within that was called the Holy of Holies and in that Holy of Holies was the ark. The ark is where the high priest went once a year and that's where God came down. Wherever that ark was, God was. I said, wherever the ark was, God was. Coming up very shortly, this thing going to go into disarray. Josiah was a great man, but you know what? God never intended him to turn it around. God never intended Josiah to turn around, just like God doesn't intend Bob Alexander to turn it around. Because God's judgment was coming, just as I stand before you, God's judgment is coming. God had for Josiah and me and for you and for you and for you and for you the same calling. Stand up in the darkness and proclaim the light. But God's judgment was coming. And God was not going to allow that ark to land in the hands of the Gentiles. And when God took the kingdom of Israel off this earth, he took God off this earth where Israel was represented in the ark of the covenant. My point is being this. You may ask yourself the question today, where is God? You may look around you and all the things of Christianity with all the big churches and all the big flowery things and all the great speeches and all the great men that talk and all the great names on a Christian radio and all the guys you hear and all the books that you can read in the Christian bookstore and you may ask yourself the question, where is God? And I want to say to you, it is very confusing. It is very confusing unless you have an absolute standard infallible authority that shows you in Israel's time where God was and if the parallels hold true, ladies and gentlemen, then it shows you today where God is. In that particular point there where we're at, God was with the man who found the book. Whoever he may be. In the, tabern God, in the Old Testament, God dwelt in that tabernacle. In the New Testament, God dwells in that book. Josiah had the book. He had God. And the tabernacle, the Ark of the Covenant, was with him. And the New Testament time and age that you and I live in, you want to find the book? You want to find God? Find God with a man who's got the book. And I'm not necessarily talking about myself, though I've got the book. I'm talking about any man that's got the book. Any man that'll stand and tell you that that book is the absolute final authority and there's nothing else in this world or in this life and put that book above every piece of education, every piece of everything in this world, that that book is in the place where God intended it and put it to be in his own Bible ahead of his own son's name. And that's what the Bible says. Nehemiah in the book of Psalms. That's where you found God. And I'm telling you, First Chronicles shows you inwardly how you build it. Second Chronicles shows you and I how to build it outwardly. Because in the next chapter, chapter 36, and this ends our sermon today, the captivity comes. And just as surely as the captivity came in Jeremiah chapter 36, and God's judgment fell on a nation that had a form of godliness but denied the power thereof, a nation that was supposed to be God's people and carry the word of God to the world, but for a long time they were without the true God, they were out a teaching priest, and they were out the law. 
we find that God's judgment is going to fall on this old world. The rapture of the church is going to take place any moment, any time. If you know anything about your Bible at all, all around this world the scene is set. The Antichrist is in the back wing waiting for his, on his black horse, waiting to ride out and to take over this world. And you know what? He's coming. It's coming just as sure as God's judgment came in Second Chronicles chapter 36. Your job and my job in these last days is to raise your families, raise your marriages, put your families together, do everything you need to do by that book, that absolute authority, and then tell somebody else you found a book. Because God is with that book. And God is the God of that book. And just as sure as this God's judgment is going to fall on this world today. In these last days, it's your job and my job to stand up and tell one beggar from another beggar. Not a scholar, not some great Bible student, just as old Mel Sabaka told me, and old Pete Ruckman told him, and old Bob Jones Sr. told him, and old Sam Jones told Bob Jones Sr., one beggar telling other beggars where to get bread. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Father.